On December 1st, 2015, Columbia Technology Ventures hosted an introductory presentation by Doug Cole, managing partner of Flagship Ventures, followed by a conversation between Doug Cole and Oren Herskowitz, executive director of CTV at Columbia University. What I'm going to do for the first few minutes is just give a little bit of an overview of Flagship, uh, which I think will help you to get some context and sort of how we approach the world and will set the, the foundation for my conversation with Oren. Uh, so Flagship's been around for 15 years. Uh, this just shows um, the, um, uh, from inception in 2000 until now, we've raised five funds. Uh, this is the size of the funds, which in aggregate represent about $1.3 billion. Uh, the fund five was closed just earlier this year. Um, we've, uh, we're an early stage venture capital and venture creation firm, and I'll talk a lot more about that. Uh, focused uh, entirely on life science and primarily on healthcare. Uh, so for, for most of what we do is in therapeutics and related things, but gradually and uh, 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 intentionally, we've been expanding into adjacent areas that build on the same technological um, understanding, um, but uh, address different business needs and, and needs in society. Uh, the red dots here refer to companies that we've created within uh, our flagship venture labs, and I'll be speaking quite a bit about that um, over the next few minutes. So um, flagship, uh, um, we have a very particular approach to the whole world of starting and creating companies and, uh, and helping them uh, hopefully become successful. And what we're uh, looking for is the intersection of this is supposed to be discontinuous uh, advances uh, and major needs. So discontinuous advances in technology and science and major needs in society. Um, and the emphasis that, that we have is on building companies, on uh, an entrepreneurial perspective, and on an aspirational mindset. Uh, so um, every company that we do, we're trying, uh, we believe at the inception has the possibility to become a very significant company with some sort of transformative impact on an important domain of need. Um, and we try to help the companies think in those sorts of terms. Um, as I mentioned, we are primarily focused on therapeutics, which represents about 60% of what we do. Health technologies, we do a little bit of diagnostics and tools, uh, and then sustainability, by which we mean investing in areas um, where there's potential shortages, such as food, water, um, bioenergy, et cetera. We're very actively involved in the companies that we do, as you'll see. Uh, we're, we actually are the company many times at the beginning, even when we're not. Uh, we're usually the lead investor or co-lead investor. We're on the board, et cetera. Um, and the team that we have uh, is really not grounded in the investment world. Uh, and I'll also be talking quite a bit about that. We're, we're really uh, people who are interested in building companies. And, uh, and uh, we're all entrepreneurs in some aspects of our lives. Um, there's a lot of uh, focus on the importance of being uh, building a defensible core for the company, which usually has a lot to do with the IP. One of the things that's unique about Flagship, something that we call the Flagship Venture Lab, um, uh, as you saw on the, on the first slide, um, we founded about 35 companies over the last 15 years. And uh, the Venture Lab is a dedicated group of people at Flagship 
um, whose only job or main job uh, is to conceive and start companies. So these are not people who are looking at lists of, of technology or looking for deal flow to invest in. Uh, these are people who are thinking about opportunities and creating the basis for a company that comes out of those, those thoughts. Uh, so these are people who are, uh, by training, typically MDs, PhDs in biology or chemistry or engineering, uh, or people who have been entrepreneurs, have started companies previously, uh, et cetera. And um, as I mentioned, we've uh, founded quite a number of companies. And there's a very specific belief that underlies the Venture Lab and a very specific method that we've developed, which we are um, very proud of. And I'll describe that to you in a moment. But just to put this into context, how we understand what the Venture Lab does in the context of what other people do. And by the way, other approaches that, that people take to these things, as far as I'm concerned, all have their place, are all legitimate. So while I'm talking about what we're doing primarily, I'm not saying it's better than anybody else. I'm just saying it's what we do. Um, so you often hear about uh, incubators, which are really largely um, uh, sources of infrastructure for people who are starting companies, maybe some lab space, maybe some backroom uh, um, uh, expertise, et cetera. Uh, catalysts and accelerators, which typically provide small amounts of money to very defined opportunities, often in biotech, to basically take a compound and move it from an early stage to a slightly later stage. Uh, angel investors who invest small amounts of money. Early stage venture capital, which is really looking for companies that have at least partially, if not entirely, formed and now are ready for some meaningful capital. Um, academic founders, and we work very closely with many of the leading academics in the world, um, who um, uh, are often highly inventive, uh, very creative in terms of interrogating nature and, and discovering um, uh, what makes things happen. Um, but um, we make a distinction between invention, uh, on the one hand, and discovery, and innovation, which is putting invention and discovery into the context of some practical use. And, um, and that's not so much for, for many of the academics with whom we work, uh, their primary domain. Uh, so um, what we do is uh, a lot of original innovation, uh, a lot of invention uh, comes out of the Venture Lab itself, as opposed to just looking elsewhere. Uh, and we bring to it a very entrepreneurial mindset, um, which is all about trying to build great companies. Just briefly on the process that we apply. You know, I think that often, uh, there's, a, there's a few words that, that one often hears in the world in which I operate, at least. Venture capital is one of them. And um, what a, part of what I want to try to convince you of is that what we do is related to venture capital, but we actually think is quite different. Um, and then uh, innovation is another one, and entrepreneurship is another one. Many people, I think, kind of have an image of entrepreneurs as uh, driven, dedicated, creative people who operate somewhat in isolation, maybe with a small group of people, maybe on their own, uh, and who, come hell or high water, are intent on building the next big company, uh, often with suffering and, and anguish uh, along the way. Um, 
And I think that it's viewed as, as, in many instances, sort of an artisanal process. It's almost as if the entrepreneur is sort of the business equivalent of the bohemian artist who's suffering for their, for their craft. Um, and our view is that there's actually a more systematic approach that can be brought to the entrepreneurial process that if applied with discipline and rigor can lead to very surprising uh, destinations and some that, uh, that we think are very exciting. And so the, the intellectual process that we have is first to define white space. So this would be some area um, represented by uh, 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 needs, for example, in, in, in uh, therapeutics or advances in technology or insights into science. Um, but where uh, there's not really been uh, a, a dedicated effort to figure out if there's ways of translating that into value. And then we do what we call explorations. And the key uh, uh, to this is that we invert what is, I think, the more common approach to trying to figure out if there's an opportunity. That is, um, we say there's an opportunity before we know it's actually possible. And by asserting that reality uh, and then subjecting it to um, the evolutionary pressure of other people's critical input, uh, we either end up concluding that it was a good idea and we go forward with it, that it was an okay idea but with modification uh, we could go forward with it, or that it was a bad idea and we convince ourselves it's not worth doing and then we don't go forward with it. Um, it's a different thing from doing that uh, as opposed to going to people and saying, uh, what is your best idea to treat cancer? Which elicits a very different response. Um, what we like to say is that, is that uh, one of the most abundant uh, uh, commodities uh, that there are in the world is negative feedback. Uh, people are delighted to give you their negative criticism when you say, I think I can cure lung cancer by doing X. They'll tell you all the reasons that that's a bad idea. And they may be right, but maybe they have missed something. Whereas if you go to them and you say, uh, tell me how to cure lung cancer, uh, they're unlikely to tell you their best idea. They're gonna keep that to themselves. Um, after we've done that iterative process to the point where we think we have a very specific hypothesis, we form a proto-company. A proto-company is a company uh, in the sense that there is something is incorporated. We don't name it. One of the reasons that we don't name it is because entrepreneurs fall in love with their companies. And once they've started a company, they're very, very unwilling to say it was a bad idea. But um, we don't have a name for the company. We don't have titles for the company. We don't have business cards for the company. Uh, and the people who are working in the proto company, if it fails, will not be out of a job. So it creates a bit of a different mindset. And the proto company is there to test a very specific sort of go, no go hypothesis. It might relate to some question about intellectual property. It might relate to a scientific question. It might relate to uh, some aspect of understanding a market or what have you. Um, that process typically runs for six months or so, overseen by a small group of people at flagship. And if the answer turns to turns out to be supportive of going forward, then we form what we call a new co, where we do formalize a company, we give it a name, we give it a form, et cetera, and start building out a company with more capital. And then, when it gets to the point where we think we can raise outside capital, it becomes a full-fledged venture. Um, so uh, this is uh, 
uh, one of the, the, the very fundamental aspects of this, and I think that it's a unique thing about what Flagship does, is that often the intellectual basis for this company, these companies are coming entirely or partly from Flagship. So we ourselves have filed about 300, now 300 plus uh, US patent applications. We have over 165 issued US patents. And many of those become the basis for the company or they get combined with, pat with IP from Columbia, Harvard, Rockefeller, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the point being that we're not sitting there primarily kind of waiting for others uh, or sort of looking at lists and trying to pursue deal flow, et cetera. Um, we think that this opens up lots of opportunities for us to uh, explore directions that may not otherwise get explored. <clears throat> so uh, of course, a critical part of what we do relates to the network of people um, with whom we uh, do all of, of, of these activities. And academic institutions are, are a critical element of that. Um, as it relates to these venture lab efforts, though, what we're primarily looking to in our, with our academic colleagues is, is one of two things. One is this critical feedback. And obviously, uh, the expertise that uh, there is at a place like Columbia is such that we're going to get very, very deep insights when somebody says, well, um, that would be great if you could do it, but have you thought about X? And X, I believe, would make it impossible to do, and then we can go back and think about that. Um, but just to, just to be very clear, we're equally happy if some people from academia, and we're in the middle of a number of these efforts right now, come to us with their intellectual property and say, we think this is interesting. This often happens. We think this is interesting. We really have no idea whether it could be a company, although we'd like to know that. Uh, what do you think? And then we work with them to try to go through this process. <clears throat> so um, uh, I think that, this, the, that the, the Venture Labs model is, is quite distinctive and I, I think unique. And let me just try to put it into the context of how I see um, more conventional venture capital. If you think about, and I'm just going to be talking about biotech now, primarily therapeutics. Uh, if you think about uh, the main sources from which companies get their equity capital, uh, there are public investors. Uh, these are people who buy and sell stocks. Typically, they're investing somewhere from high ones to up to 100 or more millions of dollars uh, in public equities, which can be freely traded on public markets. And usually for biotech companies, those are in companies that have late stage preclinical to mid-stage clinical products, occasionally earlier and occasionally later. There are private equity firms which typically only invest in, in companies that have sales revenue and the, public the private equity firm buys that company in order to rationalize its operations. And then, uh, and I'm simplifying, I'm leaving out some things, but uh, uh, everything else uh, is sort of often considered the purview of venture capital. Um, so that would be companies from startup to mid-stage clinical trials. Um, but the point is that, that there's a huge amount of heterogeneity in that. And so when people talk about venture capital funds, I think it's important to get a little bit more information to understand exactly what they're doing. Uh, among the ways that the focus of different funds differs is that, uh, on the one hand, Many funds are primarily focused on companies that have an asset. And they think of the company as the asset. 
And it's all about moving that asset forward. Um, that's essentially a project. Uh, it's a company in name only. And if you think about it from the fund's perspective, having a portfolio of asset companies effectively makes the fund like a pharmaceutical development company. Um, other funds are more interested, and this is a smaller number, in platforms. That is, uh, technologies or insights into biology that have potentially broad ramifications. Uh, many of the venture capital funds are really primarily interested in things where there's a uh, reasonably advanced asset, typically at clinical stage, uh, about to go into the clinic or already in the clinic. Uh, and then a smaller number that are willing to entertain opportunities that are much earlier than that. Um, and, um, and then um, there are differences in the mindset of uh, uh, how to think about where you want to take the company. Uh, one often hears in discussions with venture investors about the exit. Uh, right at the beginning, people want to know, what's the exit? How are you going to get out? Um, we actually don't think much about that. What we think about is value. Uh, uh, it's not that we're not interested in exits. It's not that we're not interested in making money. We are. Um, but um, exits are uh, an indication of success. They're not uh, the sole uh, um, calibration of success. And then finally, um, uh, uh, the classical venture capital model is a model where uh, people come to you with their business plan and their team and they pitch it to you and you make a decision. Uh, uh, the resource, the primary resource that you have at your disposal is cash. Uh, and you choose to deploy that cash to, to the subset of, of pitches that, that appeal to you. Um, as I've mentioned to you, uh, we're really um, trying to innovate through our, our own efforts and the efforts of, of those around us and to get a return not on our cash per se, but on innovation. Uh, and uh, that creates a very different mindset of how we think about companies. So um, uh, this is meant to say that while I'm talking about our venture creation, uh, the mindset applies to every company that we do. Because it, over half the companies that we do are ones that have formed at some level and then come to us to ask us for capital. Uh, and I'm going to now just very briefly uh, run through a number of the companies that we've been involved with, just to give you a little bit of a flavor for how this plays out. And I'm only going to speak very high level about this. Moderna is a company that we started at Flagship several years ago. Uh, it had been triggered by a publication in an, uh, from Harvard uh, about using chemically modified RNA to um, uh, hijack the cell's machinery to make a protein that would then affect the cell. Um, we uh, filed a number of patents uh, around this in conjunction with, uh, with the academics. This wasn't done in opposition or behind their back or anything. Um, but those patents became the, the basis for Moderna, which is now using chemically modified RNA as a new class of drugs, which has the potential to uh, eliminate the entire way that all biotherapeutics uh, are made, tested, uh, and used. Um, the company, since its founding in 2010, uh, and the company's still private, has raised actually a billion dollars, um, about 500 million from investors and, and 500 million from corporates, um, and uh, is, going, is moving quickly towards first test of this concept in man. Ceres Health is a company that we started several years ago 
based on our recognition in 2006 that the microbiome was likely to, to, uh, to be an important area. We actually spent several years trying to figure out how you would make a company out of this. Uh, Ceres was ultimately started to create drugs from the microbiome based on the view, which uh, we believe emphatically, that the microbiome is effectively an organ of the body, just like the liver, just like the heart. Uh, I was a physician by training, and I can tell you that uh, you know, as my training uh, led me to think, bugs were bad and you tried to kill them. Um, in some cases, of course, that's right, but the microbiome, a healthy microbiome is critical to human health and has to be thought of as something that can be treated to restore the health of the microbiome just as you would do to any diseased organ. Uh, series has its first compound in the clinic, uh, which in early stage clinical trials looks like it cures our refractory C. diff, uh, and the company went public uh, uh, earlier this year. Rubius is a company that we've founded based on uh, the realization that one of the very best ways to get uh, therapeutics around the body is to use what the body does, which is put them in red blood cells. And there's a number of advantages and benefits to engineering red blood cells to, uh, to deliver drugs, and this company is early in its evolution. So these are all companies that came out of the venture lab. But as I said, the same mentality applies to companies that we've invested in. Agios is sort of a hybrid. Agios uh, uh, came from conversations with Lou Cantley, who's now at Cornell, but was at Harvard at the time. Craig Thompson, who's now at Sloan Kettering, but was at Penn at the time, and TACMAC. And the three of them in 2007 uh, had decided to start a company based on their belief that metabolism was driving many cancers and perhaps other diseases. And this was really a, uh, this was an old idea that had long ago been dismissed and was now sort of considered anathema. Um, and they were widely uh, criticized for, for their views. But we were convinced that there was a real opportunity here. And in conjunction with our colleagues at Arch Venture Partners, uh, we spent about six months having put a bit of money in, elaborating the ideas. We then went to Third Rock Ventures as a third fund, and they came in about seven or eight months later. Um, and Agios was started in, in 2007, uh, fully funded in 2008. In 2010, did a deal with Celgene, which at that time was one of the biggest early stage corporate deals in biotech, where they raised $120 million, $130 million, uh, and now has a real pipeline of compounds for cancer, and for metabolic disease, which had begun to show very dramatic results. The company went public a couple of years ago and is valued at around $3 billion or so. Editas is a company that we did based on gene editing and CRISPR technology. I'm sure everybody here uh, has at least heard about it or knows about CRISPR in detail. Uh, we think probably the biggest technology advance in biology in the last 20 or 30 years. I think it's really changed biology overnight. Uh, it's a very exciting. Um, area with many challenges. Uh, you hear about it in the news every day. And um, we did this in conjunction with a number of other funds. Receptos is a company that I'll mention, which we did on the West Coast, based on advances in understanding how to uh, solve the structures of G-protein-coupled receptors with one lead program for a receptor called S1P, which actually had already been tested in man and validated as a very promising way to treat multiple sclerosis and other diseases. The reason that I mention this, because I'm sure it'll come up with Oren, is that at the inception of Receptos, we didn't have the long-term CEO. We had an interim CEO, a very renowned biotech veteran named Bill Rastetter, but he was only going to be there until we found the long-term person. Uh, 
Uh, the person that we hired, Fahim Hassanein, is an exemplar of what a true entrepreneur is. Uh, and um, what Fahim did <clears throat> was he built the company from when it was started in, I think it was 2009, and he came in 2010, to um, something with sufficient promise that Celgene bought the company for $7.2 billion earlier this year. Uh, and then just two more. Denali is a company uh, that we were just involved in starting with Arch and a number of other people on the West Coast, Mark Tessier, Levine at Rockefeller. Um, my background is in neurology and neuroscience, and uh, Flagship has avoided that area for 15 years because of me, um, because we didn't believe that it was, uh, that it was actionable. Um, for a variety of reasons, we believe it's now becoming possible to actually think about uh, developing disease-modifying therapies for diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And, uh, and Denali is based on that uh, conviction. And then finally, Torque is a company uh, where a couple of people came to us, a Hughes investigator from the Koch Institute at MIT, and a great entrepreneur who'd been at Merrimack Pharmaceuticals. And uh, it's using uh, materials engineering to control immune cells. So it's a very elegant system where you can basically attach things to, for example, CAR T cells and uh, significantly augment their properties, for example, to open the possibility of uh, treating solid tumors. So that just kind of gives you a sense when I'm talking about thinking big in companies and being aspirational of the sorts of things that we do and, and how we get there. Uh, this is just you know, a couple of, of indicators of some of the successes this has produced. These are companies that ended up getting sold. Uh, these are uh, IPOs that we've done just over the last couple of years. Uh, we've done more than that previously. Uh, and this is, this is slightly out of date. This was as of about a month ago. Um, the value of the IPOs when they occurred over the last couple of years and the value of, of what those companies are in the public markets now. Uh, and again, this isn't the be all and end all. Um, it's, it's one indication of success. We're very proud of this. But what we're really proud of is that it's our view, at least, that some of these companies uh, are sufficiently exciting and sufficiently uh, ambitious and sufficiently creative um, that they're leading people to think that some things might be possible that they previously hadn't thought would be the case. So with that, I'll, I'll wrap up. I wanted to start off with, a, uh, with something you mentioned early on, which is that from your perspective, you see flagship as being structurally different um, in hypotheses and the way you operate from many other venture firms. Um, and a few things jumped out at me as that struck me as different than the way some other VCs would operate. So I'll maybe go that direction first. Sure. But in particular, around your venture labs concept, um, the way you explain it it seems like an, a fantastic and obvious approach in some ways. And yet, it's not the way most venture firms that we've experienced have organized themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I guess if we had one of those other firms that don't have that structure in place, that tend to do more of their R&D essentially externally, <clears throat> um, are looking to acquire things at a later stage, what do you think they would say about why their model is different? Like why isn't everyone structured the way you're structured? Um, I, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that uh, people are interested in different things. Uh, and, um, you know, I sort of 
broadly outlined sort of a spectrum of, of uh, sources of capital that are available to, to biotech companies. Uh, but many people who control that capital really are uh, investors. That's what interests them. That's how they think about the world. Um, and that's what they want to do. Um, uh, you know, while investing capital is one element of, of what Flagship does, uh, we're really entrepreneurs. Um, really what we want to do is build companies. Um, we, want, we want personally to have, uh, you know, an impact on, on patients and on, on society. Um, and, uh, and one benefit of that will be making money for our LPs and for ourselves, et cetera. Uh, so I think a lot of it just has to do with, um, you know, kind of, kind of what drives you. And I think that there's many different uh, uh, legitimate strategies, uh, you know, for being successful in this, in this, uh, uh, in the world. That being said, I think that if you look at uh, where there are outsized successes, um, uh, those are typically where people have instantiated the potential for real disruption. Um, they don't necessarily have to have completely demonstrated. That is, they don't necessarily have to uh, take some revolutionary concept and create drugs and move them all the way through the clinic and get them on the market and sell a billion dollars worth of, of uh, um, sales in a year. Um, but they have to show that, that there's a legitimate potential for doing that. And it's our view that, that um, the markets are sufficiently efficient that uh, when you have demonstrated that to some level of plausibility, uh, markets will recognize it. So that's a good way to get paid. It must create, uh, must be hard to manage in a sense though, because you've got, whereas a traditional firm, a traditional venture investor who can, who waits longer before, waits for more validation, uh, waits for the IP to be hardened, waits for a, a working prototype or a you know, lead compound, would have the luxury of working on far fewer uh, potential ideas a year in a sense. They could have them be screened outside the firm. Whereas you guys have organized yourselves such that you're taking on more of that risk and therefore more of those projects. Does that lead to a different management structure for the firm? Uh, flagships is not particularly formal in its management structure. There's a small number of uh, senior people at the firm. We've been together for uh, essentially the whole time. Um, so uh, there is an informality, and I can't, to be honest with you, really speak to uh, how that relates to other firms' management mm -hmm. structures. Um, but maybe, maybe uh, one metaphor that sometimes I, f I find useful, which would kind of convey uh, an aspect of, of this, is you know, I, I think about uh, looking at the Sunday Times book review. Um, I think that, that most venture capital firms are similar uh, in a sense, to the people who write those reviews. They are um, uh, sharing uh, their analysis of and rendering an opinion on uh, what somebody else has created. I think that what we're like, uh, perhaps more, is the people who wrote the books that are getting reviewed. Uh, and while those, those disciplines intersect in very intimate ways, uh, they're fundamentally different. Um, and so, uh, I think that we're driven more by that sort of creative process, and it allows us to, to come up with things without necessarily waiting for other people to mm -hmm. do so. So something else that we, 
um, so, so over the last few years, as I mentioned earlier, as we've gone from four or five patent-backed startups a year to 14 to 17 to 27 last year, um, it's fantastic from our perspective to see this new interest uh, from the venture community in sort of academic stage, early stage technologies. It's very exciting, I think, for us and for our faculty and graduate student inventors. Um, we get different perspectives from different VC firms on the role of the academic founder. So maybe if I could just take a minute there. Um, there are some VCs that we work with that won't touch an idea unless there is a, a team in place, at least someone a strong lead um, with a vision, someone with a vision and some operating cap uh, capabilities who they can believe in and feel like they're investing in. And there are other firms that, put, that would prefer to build the teams themselves um, and would rather the idea come sort of strip clean of that. And so I guess I'd be interested in hearing Flagship's perspective. Um, and also, from your perspective, what are the common pitfalls if, you, if we do have an academic founder who is really determined to be part of the company? What are some roles that you've seen work? What are some common pitfalls that those folks encounter along the way? Well, as it relates to the first part of your question, uh, I think that we are agnostic as to whether um, an opportunity emerges with a leader or an entrepreneur already in place, uh, or whether uh, part of what we need to do is to help fill that need. Um, I think I would turn it around a little bit. What, what would um, be harder for us, or what often is harder for us, is when somebody is in place that we don't think is the right person. Mm -hmm. uh, because often the, the uh, 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 effort required or even the possibility of extricating that person without having the whole thing kind of collapse um, uh, is not sort of a navigable path. So I think the critical thing is that the right person, the right team uh, ends up in place, uh, however that happened. Um, you know, as it relates to your question about academic founders, I mean, academic um, people who are interested in doing a company uh, inevitably um, uh, ask sort of questions about what their role might be or whether it's best to do to put their technology into a company versus licensing it to pharma or whatever. And, and the, the perspective that I share with them is that uh, there's, I don't think that there's any right or wrong answer to that question. Uh, I think that there's an answer that's right or wrong for each of those people. There are some academics who uh, really um, don't want to be uh, in any way diverted from uh, writing papers and, and advancing their particular area of, of, of research and so on, and teaching and, and doing the aspects of, of being a professor. Uh, and the other things don't interest them at all. Uh, there are some who really are keenly interested in the whole entrepreneurial uh, world and what it's like to think about financing and, and intellectual property and all of that, and they want to be intimately involved in that. And then there's people in the middle. I think that, that uh, a mistake is when people end up going down a path that's not actually compatible with what they really want. Mm -hmm. Because they'll, there's some point along uh, at which they will, I think, become uncomfortable with that. So I uh, uh, always try to spend a lot of time, if I'm working with academics, trying to um, be sure that they're comfortable 
that whatever the prescribed path is, is consistent with their own priorities, uh, and then to operate accordingly. As a, as a footnote, even the ones who uh, are, are uh, uh, curious about the, the, the business world, most of those people still want to have their labs and so on. And so it's important to be sure that as a company gets built, that uh, the company is cognizant of uh, what the academic is doing in their lab uh, and vice versa so they don't step on each other's toes. So a lot of the, let's go with the, for the folks who both believe they should be CEOs and are right about believing they should be CEOs. So the, the ones that, that you actually want to work with. Uh, assuming we have a few of those in the audience, is there advice that you give folks who think they've got a good idea and want to turn it into a startup about um, ways that they can enhance their experience and their expertise outside of bench research? Are there, are there books you always recommend to new entrepreneurs or courses you think they should take? Um, universities are putting a lot of effort these days into trying to create a supportive um, community and set of resources for entrepreneurs. So it'd be great to know what your perspectives on those are. Uh, I, I don't think I have a simple uh, form, formula for, for that. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, so I can only mention a couple of things which, which people may or may not find useful. Um, I think sometimes people, as they think about building a company, maybe focus more on the details of the technology to the exclusion of the human element. And I think that, that often that proportion is, uh, uh, is inappropriate. Uh, even for a company which is effectively a project with a single asset, uh, the people who are going to commit themselves to moving that forward uh, and put their, the next two, three, five years of their lives into making it successful are the absolute critical variable. And for broader opportunities where there's a lot of uncertainty about what direction it would go, that's even more emphatically the case. And so I think that if an academic wants to be more involved, one piece of advice might be to really focus on the quality of the people um, uh, that would be gathering around that and um, that would be part of the group with whom they would work. That relates both to the actual skills of, of that group of people uh, um, and also the personalities of those people. Uh, uh, you, know, you tend to put a lot of yourself emotionally, psychologically, just in terms of time into a company, and if it's with a group of people who, with whom you're not compatible, uh, that can turn out to be unpleasant. Um, I also think that, that uh, you know, and, and by the way, each of us makes his or her decisions about uh, who those other people are in their own way. So there's not a right or wrong uh, on that, but I think you have to make those, those decisions. Um, I think a second thing is, is that uh, each of us probably knows about companies or initiatives uh, that they particularly respect and, and think are admirable. You know, everybody talks about Apple as a company that's exemplary in many ways and, and so on. Uh, in biotech, one would probably hear about Genentech or, uh, or maybe more recently Biogen or Vertex or what, what have you, whichever companies you choose. And I think that it's useful to look at the positive examples and, and ask, are there lessons that one might infer uh, about how they got to be successful in that way. And likewise, look at companies that didn't do well uh, 
and, and try to see if which of those can be translated into your own uh, situation. You know, as it relates to books, um, um, my answer is, is probably a, a little bit unconventional. I, I actually think that two of the best books, uh, to my own, uh, to my own uh, view, that helped me think about this business were, one is a book called Genghis Khan and the Founding of the Western World. And uh, it's not because Genghis Khan is necessarily a, uh, an admirable figure in some ways, but he was, at least as depicted in this book, an original thinker and somebody who was thinking big and was driven by merit in certain respects. And uh, there were aspects of what he did which I actually found to be quite instructive. Um, another book that I found useful is uh, Moneyball, um, about uh, cyber, uh, sabermetrics in, in baseball. Again, not because of baseball per se, but because uh, that whole approach was a very orthogonal view of how to understand the potential for value creation in baseball. And it encountered extreme skepticism from the entrenched uh, group of old scouts who you know, felt like they knew how you would figure out who the next Babe Ruth uh, or Derek Jeter or whatever would be. Now, um, uh, you know, it's turned out that sabermetrics has really revolutionized baseball in many ways. So I think it's the, the difference in thinking uh, is the lesson that I took from that book, which I've applied elsewhere. Hmm. Genghis Khan doesn't have a blog, as far as I know, but are there, are there, are there, are there uh, your, any peers of yours uh, or other writers who are chronicling the industry that you think, uh, that you follow or that you think others should follow? Um, you know, I think that one group and one individual who has a very provocative and in many ways to me compelling view is Peter Thiel uh, on the West Coast, and he's uh, written a book um, zero to one, and he's often talking publicly and so on. So I think that he's one of the most interesting. Uh, you know, of course, uh, uh, you know, Warren Buffett um, has um, created his own path to unprecedented success. Um, uh, one, there may be very specific details of what people like those uh, have done that are applicable. But, but I've always found that, that perhaps the most fundamental lesson from people like those that I find admirable is the independence of their thinking. And I think that thinking independently is a very hard thing to do. It's not contrarian thinking, which is actually quite derivative. It's independent thinking. Sometimes the, the common view is the, the right view. Uh, and so those would be two people whom, to whom I pay attention. Um, so since we have a number of folks in the room who are interested in intellectual property, I'm going to touch on that briefly. Um, over the last four or five years, there's been a real debate, as I'm sure you've been following, to some degree, probably not as much as some of us uh, in Congress, um, about the role of intellectual property in industry, in entrepreneurship, um, whether patents are enabling innovation or hindering innovation. Um, and it is traditionally broken down, or seen as breaking down, largely as a, as a battle between the biopharma industry and other long, you know, high capex, long cycle time industries on one hand, and the software industry, the Googles and the Intels and the Microsofts of the world that would, are often seen as just wishing the patents would just go away. Mm -hmm. um, in your slides earlier, you mentioned that for flagship, intellectual property plays a really critical role um, so I'd first love to hear just uh, a little bit more about that. Like when you are looking at a new opportunity, 
Um, what kind of diligence do you, how do, do you do a lot of diligence on the intellectual property? Um, how much stake do you put in the role of the early intellectual property? And then in particular, as a firm that invests both in sort of the wet science, but also is increasingly moving into this uh, area of the intersection of, of life science and engineering mm -hmm. uh, with things like gene editing or, or uh, diagnostic or big data, healthcare IT. Where do you think patents are gonna play out in that space? Is this still gonna be core for you or does it become less important in those areas? Well, I think that uh, intellectual property is critical. Um, but it's important to conceive of it more broadly than just patents per se, uh, and also to be um, uh, thoughtful about the possibility of getting patent, patented intellectual property uh, in the fullness of time that would be, that would be defensible. Um, uh, we certainly spend a huge amount of time trying to understand what the barriers are when we start a company. Uh, and then what the potential barriers are uh, over time. Uh, sometimes that has a lot to do with analyzing patents and patent filings and so on uh, early on. Typically for therapeutic companies, many of the patents that are filed uh, through universities early on relate to assays and methods and so on, which provide a, uh, a starting point but ultimately are not that valuable. Sometimes you can leverage those into significant non-dilutive capital over the first two to three years, which is probably their main value. Um, but you really are going to have to have some kind of composition of matter, ownership, eventually. And um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the whole therapeutics industry uh, is fundamentally dependent on that because people are not gonna bet a billion to two billion dollars of risk capital, which is what it takes to develop a drug all of the way. Um, if anybody can just copy it immediately, and and as the as you start to play more in areas where it's still related to human health, but um, maybe it's more about uh, crop, you know, the agricultural mm -hmm. side, or it's healthcare IT diagnostics. Um, do you still think that that uh, patented intellectual property is going to be as critical to your analysis? Um, uh, for we actually have largely avoided IT-based um, investments, not to say that we wouldn't change over time. Um, but but part, of, part of that is because um, I think that, that uh, the ability to defend those businesses through intellectual property, whether it's know-how, patents, et cetera, uh, is significantly harder. And uh, it's not an area where we're as comfortable. I think in, in terms of uh, agriculture, uh, more or less uh, the, the paradigm that applies to therapeutics holds as it does with uh, new regulatory considerations and timelines. Okay, just similar. So uh, a couple more questions on the VC <coughs> sort of investment space, and then I want to get into some career advice for the folks in the audience. Um, there's a lot of, uh, clearly we are in a great era of, uh, for biotech investors and entrepreneurs. It's been an amazing market. Uh, both the public markets and the early stage investments. Um, I know that flagship has raised five hundred. The most recent fund was five thirty-seven. Five hundred and thirty-seven million dollar fund. Um, the chart you showed earlier about the value creation in the public market space is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It was like a, a eleven or twelve million dollar 
value creation, a billion, billion dollar, sorry, yep. billion dollar yeah. value creation uh, delta, which is, which is phenomenal. Um, similar to what we're hearing about in the tech space, there's, uh, there are, there's a debate about whether we're in a bubble. Mm -hmm. um, are these high valuations justified? Are they sustainable? So first question to you is, do you think we are? And, uh, and if so, what's flagship's perspective on what happens if the valuations change? Do you guys change your strategy or are you comfortable with the bets you have on the table? Uh, you know, I, I am very skeptical uh, when people talk uh, about a bubble and saying we're in a bubble um, for a few reasons. First of all, nobody knows. Um, that's crystal ball gazing. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the markets tomorrow. Uh, and nobody knows what the markets of today will look like in retrospect. Uh, so I think that, that uh, it's a problematic concept for three reasons. One is, uh, um, in addition to the fact that, that nobody knows, uh, it's really um, you know, something that explains what happened, but it doesn't explain what's going to happen. The second is, is that uh, um, you know, if you say the sky's going to fall, uh, Consistently enough, sooner or later something will happen, and people say, "Well, that you know, that guy was a genius. He, he was the one who knew the sky was going to fall." Well, if he'd been saying that for the last 20 years, uh, then I'm not sure that he was a genius. Um, and and third, you know, there is a there is a self fulfilling aspect to it, and, and one's heard that in biotech. But the debate in biotech, you know, really is um, is this just is this the success just because of a bull market? Uh, or is the success reflective of some more underlying maturation um, of the industry? And um, while there's certainly short-term ups and downs, and some of those may be reflected in some of the success that we and others have had recently, um, we're in a long-term business. Uh, and so I think that if, you, you know, if you're in the business of discovering and developing therapeutics, you're committing to five, 10, or more years to play it out. And therefore, what happens over one to two years uh, may have a short-term influ influence on your ability to raise capital, but it's not really what it's all about. Uh, I think that uh, for a number of reasons, much more fundamental trends indicate that biotech, which maybe in previous decades was all about the promise, is now actually consistently delivering. We understand much better how to define patient populations to increase our, our chances of trial of uh, success in clinical trials and the speed with which we can demonstrate that success. Agios is, is a perfect example, as is Series Health. Um, uh, uh, the level of insights into heretofore obscure areas of biology, such as transcriptional biology and super enhancers or the importance of the microbiome. Uh, are leading to a much more precise mechanistic understanding of various diseases. And then technologies such as chemically modified RNA and, uh, and gene editing are making it uh, 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 conceivable on an everyday basis to do things that were simply not possible before. And so those to me are indications that um, this industry is going to continue develop, uh, delivering value. Uh, Jason uh, did an analysis uh, just recently, where we, we asked ourselves uh, how much of the value that's being driven in the industry is in innovative drugs versus other drugs, and what might one reasonably project over the next few years. 
And if one very interesting and I think important trend is if you look at approvals of the FDA over the last 10 years, you see an increasing number of truly innovative drugs representing the percentage of drugs being approved. And I think that's because social pressures are demanding it, and that's, right, that's appropriate. Uh, if you extrapolate that and then think about the market capitalization that that will create, it's reasonable to believe in the next five years or so that there will be $250 billion or more of sales driven by truly innovative drugs, not Me Too's, and that that will create $1 to $1.5 trillion of market capitalization. So um, that's you know, making very sort of basic assumptions about growth and so on. Uh, and I think that, again, there may be ups and downs, but over that period of time, uh, I think society is going to continue to be willing to pay for the kinds of things this industry is doing. So as that evolves, um, obviously the, the, venture, the venture firms are looking for the large biopharma companies at some point. I mean, it's a very, it would be a, to, to get the drugs all the way to market, often a, common, a path would be to partner with, a, with one of the large biopharma companies. And so, at least from our perspective, it, it seems like over the last five to 10 years, most of the large firms have created their own strategic investment arms. Um, some of those are focused, or at least claim to be focused, purely on economic return. So Novartis, is, Novartis Ventures uh, has made a point of, of that they, they are essentially a venture capitalist. They are not affiliated. Their, their goal is not to insource right. compounds into the Novartis pipeline. And others are, are more focused on, on identifying the next blockbuster and bringing it in. Um, and I know that various firms of various venture firms have played around with different ways of working with strategics, whether it's having the strategic investor as an LP in the fund, um, or even to go as far as to set up the so-called build-to-buy relationships whereby the, the large biopharma has rights to acquire a compound at some future point at a predetermined price. Um, I'm curious where you see that going. Do you, do you have you guys? I, I know you've done some deals with AstraZeneca and uh, earlier, you know, partnerships with AstraZeneca and others. Um, what's Flagship's perspective on working with strategics? And do you see that being uh, any sort of best practices that you've seen in terms of VC firms that work well with? Well, I think that uh, every uh, one of the large companies that's been interested in doing something has had its own view of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, and then a number of the venture firms have had their views. So uh, I think it's hard for me to, to, to generalize. Um, uh, um, and, and it partly depends on, on what the various parties are seeking to achieve. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier um, the importance of, of people and the focus on people and thinking about how to build these, the kinds of companies that we're trying to build. And um, I think that, that um, the very best people um, are usually driven by the belief that if they're successful, uh, there will be effectively endless upside. Uh, whether they're measuring that in terms of the money uh, that they would make, whether they're, they're measuring that in terms of the impact uh, that, they, that they might have, the legacy that they will leave, uh, however they want to measure it. Um, uh, uh, to our view, many of the uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies' efforts to capture some of this more earlier stage um, uh, energy, if you will, 
uh, are constrained by the fact that they want to control it and they want to cap the upside. And I think that while that certainly works for certain types of opportunities, um, it may not be the best way to attract the very best talent to the company and to have the company operate in the most aspirational way. Um, we have a significant uh, relationship with AstraZeneca. We had one uh, previously with Merck, which, which continues uh, in our previous fund. Um, and uh, the conversation that we had with both of those companies um, was that we felt that there was a lot of benefit to flagship of being able to have open, very open, scientifically driven conversations where we share views on the opportunities of a particular scientific concept, challenges, et cetera, with no buying and selling uh, um, dimension to that conversation. Uh, and we think that, that, that they were convinced that our take on uh, uh, the entrepreneurial mandate and, and how you create value was sufficiently interesting that they wanted exposure there. In both of those uh, uh, relationships, the pharma company has no rights to anything that comes out of the relationship at all, zero. Um, now, does that mean that if they were, if they came to us and said, well, we, we, uh, we see you're doing this, we're really interested that we wouldn't entertain that conversation? Of course not. And, and we think that the fact that they know a lot about what we're doing gives them some, some additional insight that may be a competitive advantage for them. But having sort of an open uh, um, relationship where at the end of the day the market can determine prices in an unbiased way is critical to maximizing the value of potential. Got it. All right, so I'm going to turn to the career advice part. Um, as a, so Doug and I share, uh, we, we both were English majors, undergrad, <laughs> and have ended up in somewhat unlikely roles given that beginning. Um, although I guess someone whose favorite book is the uh, as a biography of Genghis Khan, you might have inferred that <laughs> uh, Doug reads broadly outside the field. Um, uh, how did you end up deciding that being a VC was the career for you? Um, and if you hadn't ended up doing this, what might you have done? Uh, um, you know, people often come to ask for advice or what have you, and, and, there are, and many of them are interested in how I got uh, here. And I, and I uh, always hasten to say that, that I, I, I'm really reluctant to suggest that any aspect of my experience is applicable to anybody else because you know, everybody's an individual and they're motivated by their own motivations and so on. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of make that as a, as a disclaimer before I, I try inadequately to answer your question. Um, you know, I grew up uh, with no exposure to the business world. My family was not in business. Uh, as, as Warren said, I studied English, which shows a real lack of business instinct. Uh, and then I went to medical school. Um, and uh, uh, I, I can't really fully recapitulate for you the specific thought process that led me in the direction that I went. Um, uh, perhaps because I came into medicine and science from outside, um, uh, there were a set of, of aspects of the world that um, I, I didn't find were entirely fulfilled for me personally in medicine, although I found medicine very, very fulfilling. Uh, just in terms of the, the range of people with whom you interact professionally, the range of issues that you have to consider in your daily decision making, et cetera. And then perhaps because I was in Boston uh, and Cambridge 
and it was already becoming such a thriving center of biotech. And you, even if you weren't part of that world, you were bumping into people who were part of that world. I think I just instinctively sensed that there was a, a center of gravity that was forming in the sort of startup world um, that had its own uh, pull. And I guess I just got sucked into it. And um, uh, I have to tell you, however, that, that when I left my full-time job in academic medicine, uh, uh, I was interested in venture. I was told by people in the venture field that I, w I wasn't qualified because I really had just a technical background. And I, I then went to work for two biotechs for five years, and I learned some, some aspects of, of the business and drug discovery, et cetera. Um, nevertheless, when I came into the venture business, uh, and I thought I had a reasonable understanding, uh, I concluded very quickly I had no idea what was going on. And it took me several years to understand, uh, to my own satisfaction, sufficiently what was going on to be able to develop my own view. And so I, I have to conclude from that that it was either a matter of, of a really good instinct, because it's been a wonderful uh, path for me, or pure luck. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's ended up well, but it was, not a, it was not a deliberate process and I didn't have a plan going in. So, so um, it, given the, the luck or instinct angle, when you're looking for the next people to join the field, to join the, the flagship, <coughs> people like, like Jason, to join the flagship team, um, where, do you, where do you go hunting for talent? Uh, what are some you know, traits you look for? or experiences that they, you're looking for? Um, any advice you'd give them for how to, how to break into the field if they, like you, have a technical background, but not much else? Um, uh, I'd say at, at, at the most fundamental level, I mean, it is a very sort of personal, a matter of personal resonance. I mentioned earlier, each of us has to make, have their own way of judging um, other people uh, that works for them. Um, but I think that each of us also has some, some way of kind of concluding that's a very compelling person or that's the kind of person I'd love to be spending time with and that person maybe not, not quite so much. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, keying into whatever those things are for, for you or for anybody in the audience, I think is a fundamental aspect of it. Um, one of the most exciting things I think about my job, uh, and I do think that it's a very privileged um, situation for which I'm, you know, I'm quite grateful, is, is that uh, on a periodic basis, I would not say a regular basis because I think this is, is, is hard. I'm talking with people, sometimes they're young people who are students uh, who you know, haven't published many papers yet. Sometimes they're senior professors who have big prizes and, and so on or, or anything in between. Um, but that person says something that is surprising, something that maybe even is so surprising that my first reaction is that can't be true. Um, and part of what I've, the instinct that I have developed in, in what, what I do now is to realize that when that happens, that's the time to pay attention. Um, uh, I'll tell you that when my partner, Nubar, first came and started talking about the microbiome, I mentioned how I had a conventional view of microorganisms and health. And uh, much of what we're coming to understand and believe about the microbiome uh, 
is completely contrary to that conventional view. Um, and my first reaction was, that's crazy. Um, maybe for uh, a couple of diseases I could see it, but for other diseases it really seemed like stretching it. Um, uh, that's a time to really pay attention and say, well, if this is a serious person who's a thoughtful person, an intelligent person, and they've come to believe or hypothesize or what have you, uh, something that seems so contrary to received wisdom uh, as to be perhaps even uh, you know, implausible, there must be some, some reason why they've come to that belief. And so when I meet people like that, that's when I get excited. Great, I, I'm gonna ask one more question. If anyone has, I think we'll have time for a couple of audience Q&A after that. Um, my last question as a New Yorker, working in New York, a school that's been around a long, long time in New York, um, we're thrilled that, to see the, re, the renewed interest in the venture community in being part of the New York scene. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Flagship and Arch are part of something called the New York City, the mayor's office has launched called the Early Stage Life Sciences Fund, um, which is a fund to invest in early stage life science coming out of New York. Um, and Doug's been leading that effort. And Jason, you're based here in New York now, right? That's right. Um, why New York? Why now? Um, uh, you know, if you, if you look um, around the world, uh, at biotech, uh, it's, a, it's, it's really an amazing fact uh, how few places have emerged as consistent sources of uh, successful biotechnology innovation. Uh, you've got Cambridge and San Francisco, um, and Cambridge has, I think, really eclipsed San Francisco in the last five to ten years and has become this unbelievably exciting place. I mean, it feels uh, to me, as I imagine uh, Florence felt in 1490 to Leonardo and, and Michelangelo. I mean, just so rich, so many people uh, all focused on various aspects of advancing this cause. And then there are some other places, uh, San Diego, Seattle, uh, RTP, etc. Um, but uh, I would say that across the world, the place where the potential, the discrepancy between the potential and what has happened seems greatest is New York City. Um, if you look at NIH money, you look at Nobel Prizes, you look at publications, you look at hospital beds, uh, you know, any number of measures of uh, um, uh, you know, potential value creation, New York is at the top of the list, number one or number two. Um, but if you look at great biotech companies, Genentech, Biogen, Amgen, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, New York has really not been on the list. And Regeneron and Celgene are two fantastic companies, but they're a little bit outside of New York per se. Um, and so um, that, that potential seemed uh, notable to us. Um, uh, then there's been uh, building on the great group of scientists and academics uh, uh, a new group of people who've come to New York over the last five to ten years. Uh, Tessier Levine is one of them, and, uh, and Tom Maniotis, and uh, Craig Thompson, and Lori Glimsher, and folks all around the city, uh, Eric Schott at Sinai, et cetera, who um, 
uh, I think represent um, a combination of some of the, the most compelling scientists and big thinkers uh, who really uh, value the commercial mandate as well as the pure academic mandate. Uh, and so uh, that seems like an interesting group of people. Um, and then, of course, you know, if you're somebody who is excited about thinking big, nobody thinks bigger than New York City. Uh, and, and, and so I think it's an experiment. Uh, it's an experiment that deserves to be done. It's, a, it's an experiment that absolutely should succeed. Um, um, but it's an experiment, the success of which will require um, one reference company, I think, to emerge that gets people so excited and creates uh, its own culture of people who start to understand building a company in this, in this venue, that everybody starts saying, oh, that's, that's what we can do in New York, so that we could be, uh, you know, biotech can emerge and start standing alongside finance and, and fashion and so on. So, uh, um, you know, time will tell, but that's, that's what motivated us. Great. Uh, looks like, oh, I see a hand up in the back. If you could, I'll repeat your question so they can get on the mic. Uh, and then I introduce yourself and say the company you're with if you're with the company. Right here. Hi, uh, my name is Jason. Uh, I'm a senior at Columbia and I'm a founder of Kinos. Um, so in the field of biotech, it can take years to be granted a patent or issued regulatory approval uh, or do field testing and so on. So I'm curious, how old are the companies that you invest in and how do you decide to invest in a company that's going to be So to repeat the question, uh, and by the way, Jason, uh, Kinos is an interesting company because it came out of the Ebola hackathon that the engineering school... Design Challenge. The Design Challenge, sorry. The <laughs> Ebola Design Challenge that the engineering school put together last year, which, uh, uh, which um, Barclay helped, um, helped put together. Um, so the question was, uh, how do you decide how early a company is sort of investable and when it's pre-revenue, sort of what criteria do you have? Um, there's not, nothing that's too early for what we do. As I mentioned, um, the starting point for many of our efforts is white space. Uh, so it can't get any earlier than that. Um, so I think that, uh, um, uh, and, and every company that we invest in is pre-revenue. So uh, that's not an issue in and of itself. Um, you know, I think that, that uh, a few of the things that make something more exciting to us. Um, one is something I mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, ideas that are uh, really original, very original ways of looking at problems. Uh, often, but not necessarily, but often uh, contrary to received wisdom, um, are worth paying attention to. Uh, um, when they lend themselves to uh, very mechanistic approaches to diseases. And when I say mechanistic approaches at the extreme, what I'm saying is an approach predicated on actually understanding physical interactions between abnormal molecules that trigger a pathologic process and are targetable therapeutically. Um, uh, that level of mechanistic understanding and the ability then to define patient populations with real precision um, or likewise, technologies which actually make it possible to do things that are, uh, had previously been impossible or extremely difficult. And CRISPR is a classic example of that. 
Um, and then, um, you know, part of our whole exploration and proto company or our diligence, if it's a if it's an established company, of course, is reaching out to uh, the you know our network of of people. And um, there's many benefits to that. As I said, we'll get a lot of negative input because people are very free with that, um, or, or other insights. Um, um, the most compelling ideas often trigger an additional reaction, which is that other good people say, and by the way, is there any way I can get involved? And if people whom I otherwise respect, um, when they're exposed to a new idea, um, are drawn to actually want to commit themselves to it by reputation, by time, by money, what, whatever it is, uh, that's another industry, in, in, interesting uh, calibration. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, the other reason that that's important is because as one becomes convinced that you can kind of build that sort of A-plus group of people around an idea, then you start to become comfortable that all of the questions that are not yet answerable, um, uh, that that uncertainty is acceptable because good people tend to have good insights and, and so on. Great. Uh, I'm going to go... Right here. Well, well, I'll do your question afterwards, and then we'll call it a day. Great. Hi, I'm Taiwan Kim. I'm at the faculty at the Columbia Medical Center, actually working with CNS Health Discovery. Uh, my question is uh, it's very practical, and I really want to ask Catherine about big picture, Catherine about Gingiska. <laughs> but, uh, you know, your uh, you know, venture-level approach seems to be, you know, kind of monitoring for the big winners, uh, big spirit, things like that. But in the real world, you know, your LP might be very scared of the risk. And your management fee might be enough to run all those operations and have them fine. And I was very impressed that you actually did this model way back then. Mm -hmm. So I was really impressed with that. And how you manage all that uh, limitations that others sort of, you know, that's major limitations that why other PPs cannot do, although they don't have enough talent. But, you know, how, I, I'd love to hear your history, how you manage you know, the time that when people are not as edu well educated as Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, as far as the LPs go, there's probably a bit of a self-selection process because we've always been very clear with potential investors that that's what we're doing. And so a lot of investors might say, it's not for us, and that's not the people who've invested in our funds. Uh, uh, it, is, it is true, however, that particularly for the first decade of the, of the century, um, uh, I'd say we were viewed with pretty intense skepticism by many of the people in the in the venture business. Um, I, you know, I don't have a I don't have a, a, a precise answer to your question except to say that uh, um, you know, on the one hand, you kind of have to do what you believe, uh, and and you know, we all make trade-offs <laughs> and compromises because that's the the nature of life, but but. Uh, we have very strong conviction uh, that this is actually the best way to create value, um, that um, uh, it's the best way to make a difference, and it's absolutely the only thing that we want to do. So we just sort of said, we're going to keep iterating this uh, um, to try to optimize it and, and get it to a point where it's working. But the core conviction um, has really been unchanged from the first day. Thank you. Last question. Uh, yeah, my name is Anne Leo, MD PhD student here. 
Uh, so I was just wondering what do you think about drug pricing in the US? Because recently there's a lot of talk about drug pricing, and then, yeah, we have all this great innovation, but if the US doesn't pay, then uh, we don't make money. So when do you think the US is going to stop paying more for drugs? So the, the, just to repeat the question, <coughs> essentially boils down to the, the balance between uh, high drug pricing, which incentivizes the innovation to get the drug to market, <coughs> and high drug pricing, which causes increased cost to the U.S. healthcare system, both to the patients and to the insurers, and sort of where do you see that? Is there a tipping point where that becomes a, a more problematic than it is? So I think it's an essential question, sort of. Uh, hanging over our entire industry from startups and investors to pharmaceutical companies and, and everybody in between. Uh, and, and I would say that it is probably the single um, biggest risk over some long period of time uh, that we have to confront. Um, I think it's a nuanced problem and that doesn't uh, typically get captured in, in much of the public discourse. On the one hand, there are very legitimate criticisms of, of what a lot of the industry has done over the years, um, making uh, you know the sixth of X type of drug, uh, and so on. And does society really need that? And certainly, should society uh, pay very much for that? Um, particularly um, given that many of the drugs, particularly uh, widely used primary care type blockbuster drugs, only work in 30% of the people who take them. That's really inexcusable. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and I think that also, and it's, it's uh, extremely frustrating, um, that the industry itself has in many ways uh, done itself a disservice by failing to communicate um, the value of what we do. I, I really am hard put to, to identify any other industry that contributes as much to the well-being of society as the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, um, but that seems to kind of get lost in the debate. Um, uh, I think that there, there is a risk, uh, and, I, and, I, um, and I frankly think that the comments of, of uh, you know, people like Bernie Sanders and, and Hillary Clinton are in, irresponsible, and I would say that if they were in this room, uh, and show a lack of understanding of uh, um, the nature of the contribution, the kinds of risks that are taken, et cetera. Um, um, but I do think that, there's an, uh, that, that there is a significant onus on all of us who are kind of collectively working in this area uh, in two regards. One way that you solve the only 30% of patients respond problem is by doing what I mentioned uh, in the context of the earlier question. As you begin precisely to understand a disease, um, and therefore you're treating a homogeneous group of patients who all have the same problem, then uh, the number of patients who are responding goes way up. The classic example of this is antibiotics. Um, but what you're starting to see uh, is in, uh, in cancer, uh, and this was first with Gleevec, and then with Herceptin, and now with a number of other drugs that are coming forward. And that paradigm has to be maintained with absolute discipline and rigor. And so what people have a hard time with that, I think, is that there are some diseases where we're just not there yet. Uh, there's still really syndromes. There's some collection of diseases that are poorly understood, and so we try to treat syndromes. There's all kinds of heterogeneity. Um, but the other, the other thing is that, um, uh, and this maybe is partly to, to, you, to your question, um, 
we have to be willing uh, to uh, take sufficient innovation risk uh, that if there is success, it's going to mean something to people. Um, the worst thing that we can do is to develop a drug successfully, it, it hit its end point, the p-value was, was acceptable, et cetera, and have nobody care. Um, so um, maybe I can finish sort of on a personal note because I'm very passionate about this. I was a doctor in the 80s and 90s. And um, uh, when I was a medical intern, AIDS had just started to become widely prevalent, uh, as an example. And I can't tell you the number of people who died in front of my eyes uh, with AIDS with no hope, um, multiple sclerosis, uh, congestive heart failure, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, many forms of cancer. These were hopeless problems. Now you fast forward to you know, 2015, AIDS is a treatable disease, multiple sclerosis is pretty treatable disease. Uh, uh, coronary artery bypass is almost never done now because we've gotten much better approaches. Uh, and you can, go down, you can go down the list. Um, uh, it, would be an, you know, it would be a shame if society decided to turn its back on that contribution to people's welfare um, for short-term, politically motivated, um, uh, very shallow economic rationales. Uh, it is true that we're paying for the pharmaceutical innovation around the world, and that's just a burden that, um, that I think we have to accept. So, I think as long as we hold ourselves up to a meaningful uh, standard of innovation and impact, um, then we should be able to continue to command uh, significant prices for drugs that are completely justified. This podcast was brought to you by Columbia Technology Ventures, the patenting and licensing office of Columbia University. Learn more at techventures.columbia.edu.